Hello, I'm Stephanie Liu. Welcome to Surface Time: Confessions of a Diving Junkie, where I chinwag with people who are like me, scuba diver and chronic addicts to being underwater. During the surface time today, I spoke with Carrie Miller and Chris Taylor, the wife-husband team who have written a book called *A Diver's Guide to the World*, published by National Geographic. The book is out in the U.S. on 6 December 2022. Before the chat. I was given a preview to one of the chapters. Immediately, I could see that this book is written with special and purposeful intentions. It reads more like a storybook rather than a typical guidebook. I can also sense the emotions about the place and experiences embedded in between the lines. And my curiosity is wondering whether there are more stories to be uncovered, especially those that could not be squeezed into the book. How's Melbourne? Very good. It's horrible weather. <laughs> It's been raining nonstop, <laughs> but you'll never believe. Look what arrived yesterday. Oh, oh! <laughs> just, just in time. Just in time for our interview. <laughs> A diver's guide to the world. How Fine. does that feel? It was amazing. So excited about it. It was a really good、uh, surprise yesterday when it arrived around lunchtime. Yeah, that you didn't know it was going to. No, <laughs> we knew we would get advanced copies before publication, but we didn't know when. So it just showed up, and there it was. And I think we were walking around a bit stunned yesterday afternoon. <laughs> so after you gone over your feeling stunned, what did you do? <laughs> We're still stunned. Still stunned. I'll skip later. Obviously, we had to have a look through it, and it is absolutely wonderful and absolutely gorgeous. And I do think lots and lots of people are really going to like this. It's turned out really nice, and、uh, yeah, very proud of it actually. I can't wait to get my hands onto a copy soon. So, congratulations! Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> It's beautiful when you have a book being published by a well-known entity like National Geographic. But that cannot kill my classic opening question: Where was your last memorable dive? Because you got a book about fifty places, and we can start with a different question: How was the idea of this book first came about? So we first met on Rodney Fox's Great White Shark expeditions. I was writing a story for National Geographic on diving with great white sharks, and Chris was a shark wrangler and dive supervisor on the boat. And so that's how we met. And when we first met, I was not a diver. Both of us loved to travel, but I was not a diver. And so when Chris and I would travel together, I would go off and do things on land, and Chris would go off and dive, and then we'd come back together and talk about what we've done and what we saw and. Both of us were extremely jealous of the other person and felt like we were missing out. I remember we were on a hike in New Zealand, which is where we were living at the time, and we started talking about a dive travel guidebook that combined these two amazing worlds that we inhabit. And why hadn't anyone really done a dive travel guidebook before? Guidebooks always talk about your decompression day. Travel books sometimes reference snorkeling or scuba diving, and then we thought maybe people know something that we don't, <laughs> and that's why no one's tried it before. And then we thought we might as well give it a shot. And I had just written 100 Dives of a Lifetime for National Geographic, and that was surprisingly their first foray into recreational diving. They've always done exploratory diving, but not recreational. So we spent a year pulling our pitch together and pitched it to them. And there were some 
editors in the room who had non-diving companions or who had diving companions, but they didn't dive. So they got the concept straight away. And it was very fortunate for us that Dr. Sylvia Earle just happened to be at National Geographic headquarters. She heard about our book concept and she said, you need to green light that right away. Why haven't you done this before? And so that everything <laughs> that got it over the line. <laughs> so, yeah, it was very fortuitous that we got the opportunity to do that. And yeah, we're very lucky and yeah, very glad that we managed to get it through. Yeah. So there's a lot of people who understand the concept. If you're a diver and you have a non-diving companion or somebody who has a disparate level of, of diving, which is a lot of people, most of the people that we encountered on our journey, some of them are hardcore diver and diving together, but a lot of them had somebody in their friend group or family group or partnership that preferred coral reefs, why they love wrecks, or maybe they like to snorkel and don't like to dive or, or they didn't like to dive at all. And yeah, so a lot of people got the concept once we started talking about it, which was fantastic. I think a side effect that this content should be lesson for non-divers and divers and a different perspective of a travel plan, there is something a bit more than that. Would you be open to talk about Komodo? Because I really like what you have put in there. It's a nice cocktail of different things. I felt like I got a really nice picture of that place. So at least my imagination was triggered by what you have written there. Oh, that's wonderful, it's wonderful to hear. That's Thank wonderful you. Like to hear. Yeah. So, so there's 50 of those places. So we didn't want it to read like a guidebook where it's go here, do this turn left at this rock and you'll see this moray eel. It's, I don't like writing the joy of discovery out of things. I want to give people a feeling of a place, a sense of the history and the culture, a few things to do. I'd rather focus on a few things and elaborate and talk about that and talk about the challenges that it's facing because none of us can travel mindlessly anymore. We have to pay attention to how we're going about it and what's happening. And while I was diving, throughout the journey as well. Chris was our designated diver and he did every dive that we wrote about and talked to all the local dive professionals and the dive guides around the area and gathered as much information as he could. And I'll let him talk about yeah. how he tackled the diving side of things. But yeah. Like Harry already mentioned, the goal was not to be too specific about the diving. So it's not your traditional dive guidebook that is extremely specific on the dive information. When we turned up to a new location, we would talk to the dive shop. And I would make a point of, I wanted to experience the destination as a normal person would experience the destination, just coming there and doing the dives that were available on that day. Obviously, when I was planning the trip, we were trying to hit as many locations at the best possible time, but it didn't always work out. So it was also more about what's the general experience like for people. And I was just on the normal boat with the other customers for the day. And we go to the dive sites that were available that day from weather and other things. So I got a good range. And in most places, I managed to dive quite a few days. And so I get a good range of what different kinds of sites are available in an area and range of things. So that worked out really well. So it was mainly just to get that overview. And the whole idea of the book is more of an overview. So even though we did specific things in the book and different trips and excursions and things like that. It is more of a getting a sense of place and that sense of place. Part of the idea of the book is to show that the whole place as a whole on land and underwater is connected. You can often see the landscapes above water carry on underwater and it's the same landscapes, but then just different vegetation and different animals live in those 
same landscapes because they're underwater. And I think our book does a really good job of showing a destination as a whole. But as you said, it's not super, super detailed in the chapters because each chapter is more of a story and is designed to be a lot more readable. So you can just read through the chapter and go, oh, that sounds really cool. That's a place I'd love to go and visit. That's the idea. What was like when you went to Komodo? Because you really gave a vivid description when I was reading it. I felt my heart was pumping. So you're describing about you approaching the Komodo dragon, diving at the mentor point, and then the other dive side, two distinctive opposite experience. One is a fast current, the other one is calm, like the fast current sensation. I could feel that going through me. So Komodo is extraordinary because it's just such a wild place and it's beautiful. I've always wanted to see Komodo dragons. I think we both have, but I've been dreaming and fascinated with Komodo dragons since I was a little girl. And when you see them, they are everything that you hope they will be. They really remind you of where we are in the food chain and it's not very high. And we weren't threatened at all. There wasn't any close encounters or any exciting stories like that. But when you see them, oh, they're just extraordinary creatures. And it's wonderful to have them in the world. And yet they're seriously under threat. They're under threat, not only from poachers, but from climate change. Sea levels continue to rise and there's droughts. And when you're seeing them and you're fortunate enough to see them and you have to hike a fair distance to go out and to try and see them in their habitat. And then the guides that take you out there and they're just fascinated with these creatures and they love them and they'll tell you all kinds of stories. And it's just an extraordinary experience. And then you go underwater which is just off the coast of these islands. And the water is boiling at the top. (laughs) And it's really unnerving because you think, what's happening underneath? And there are these currents that just whisk you along. I forget how long that particular dive was. I think think it was around two kilometers, the dive that we drifted. It wasn't a long dive. I don't think we did an hour. That's a pretty stiff current. It's definitely the strongest current in the ocean that I've been in. The only thing that I've dived that had more current was the river in Alaska. (laughs) But as a, so, so as a new diver, I was watching Chris and the dive guide stay annoyingly perfectly buoyant and I was tumbling all over the show. It took me about 10 minutes to, to get myself sorted. But then you encounter manta rays and there's just half a dozen mantas soaring in this underwater amphitheater as if they aren't bothered by the current at all. And then you're marveling all over again at this world that exists under the sea that is completely akin to but completely different to the world up top. And these extraordinary creatures that are also under pressure from climate change and overfishing and all the rest of it. And what a shame it would be if they disappeared from the world. And so you just get this sense of wanting to be a part of and wanting to be protected this amazing place and feeling very privileged to see and experience it. Every time everybody asks us about our favorite, it changes on the day <laughs> because you have <laughs> memories and a dip- some different feeling. But Komodo was special. Just Naming Komodo dragon and manta ray, they are two distinctively magnificent creatures. Magnificent by size, shape, and the look. I'm just curious if you were to go back to that point in time, what were the emotion? Wonder. Yeah. It was wonder and it was gratitude. I think anybody, even if the most stringent backpacker, if we can travel, we're very privileged. One thing that travel always does for both of us is it makes us just marvel at this weird and brutal and 
beautiful, perfect planet of ours. It's just extraordinary. Every time you think you've got a handle on something, something new comes along. Just just turn your world upside down. Make you think, whoa, we never knew that existed before. Isn't that fantastic? <laughs> and the dragons and the mantas certainly did that. Yeah, there are definitely certain animals that have an incredible presence. And who I think, yeah, you know, charisma, yeah, charisma is a good word for that. For both of us, but for me especially, it wasn't my first time seeing mantas. So every time I see mantas, it's amazing. But it was a little bit different in the experience of seeing Komodo dragons in the wild because obviously I'd never seen a Komodo dragon in the wild before. So that was a little bit of a bigger experience as far as the animal interaction went. But yeah, like I said, mantas are always absolute stunners and showstoppers it's always incredible to see them just fly through the water and so graceful with beautiful animals yeah i hope that the non-divers will get enticed or intrigued to want to experience it it really is an amazing experience and just how they just glide mm. across and then they just didn't care either there and i've been told apparently they like the bubbles yes. they actually will come close to the bubble i think they like it tickling on their stomach i've noticed that a few times myself with mantas you're able to interact with them and at the distance as well because you, you will not just go up and touch them oh. now they, they're not fluffy animals <laughs> <laughs> no, and unfortunately you harm mantas as well. Mantas and whale sharks, they have secretions on their skin. So if we touch them with our fingers and oily fingers, if you touch it, that little spot, the film that's on their skin gets broken and then they can get parasites and things. So it's definitely one of those things where you touching a manta ray or a whale shark, you're actually harming them. So you do need to be knowledgeable about that. And that's one of the main reasons why you shouldn't be touching wildlife is... Yeah, you could be harming the wildlife as well as yourself. Yeah. Okay, we're not going to talk about the other 49 places. Be <laughs> <laughs> here all night. I know. We will let the listener to become the reader of your book. I understand it's taken you quite a while to plan and then uh, travel. And then you did the travel in one short of long period of time. I'm curious. Let's take you back to the start of your excitement where oh someone helped you to get this green light turned on and what did you do next and what was going through your planning when you're selecting the destination and, and all that yeah well, first of all there was panic there was, severe <laughs> panic. there was oh my god how are we going to make this happen now that we've got this and then after that and settled in it was a lot of organization yes definitely sheer panic and then after that we've kicked into action mode as far as um, trying to because obviously we had done a lot of research and so now it was time to hone it all down we wanted to choose our destinations pretty much based on, on two criteria and the first is that there needed to be interesting things to do on land and underwater. So as much as we'd love to spend all of our time on white sand islands with beautiful fringing reefs, there needed to be other things to do. Our destinations range from everywhere from the south of France to Scotland to Alaska to off the coast of California, New Zealand to a couple of those out there islands. But yeah, there definitely needed to be a mix of on land and underwater activities. And then the second thing, which was very important, is that the destination has to be trying to do the right thing by the environment. They need to be forward thinking. They need to be thinking about being caretakers instead of profiteers. No one's getting it exactly right, but there need to be at least heading in that general direction. Then from there, we needed to obviously engage in the practicalities of it. Yeah. And the practicalities of it dictated 
realistically that within 14 months, we didn't really have a lot of time off. So there are a few weeks here and there that we've managed to have a little bit of time off where we were based somewhere writing and doing different organizational things. But basically because of that, I decided that we had to travel in one direction around the world because everything else flying back and forth would just not have worked. Firstly, it would have made it way more expensive. And secondly, it would have just from a time point of view been a lot harder. And one thing that I hadn't even thought about, but ended up being really good because we were going in the same direction the whole time and only doing short hops, we didn't end up having a lot of jet lag either. So it, it really helped with jet lag, only traveling one or two time zones at a time. So we were slowly creeping into the next time zone. So that was actually really helpful, but I hadn't actually planned that. And then on top of that, also because we wanted it to be representative of the whole world, it needed to have a decent geographical spread as well. So we didn't want to have too much in the South Pacific, too much in the Caribbean, too much anywhere else. So it had to have a, a nice spread. And then unfortunately there were one or two destinations that we wanted to go to, but for different reasons couldn't. So there's always going to be something, but in the end, the, the destinations that we chose all turned out to be absolutely perfect for the book. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to toot my own horn, but that was obviously. Okay. You, you mentioned about it. You wanted to, not just the destination itself, but also that there's something going on in the local community. And that's also a very special feature. I'm highlighting it because I think it made reading the book a lot less like Lonely Planet kind of guidebook. And I like the fact that you actually highlight what the traveler can do as a contributing factor to the local community and the benefit. What was research like for you to identify those places? Because it must require lots of Google consultation and many other consultations. It was a lot of research, but it was very important to us to have sustainability is not quite the right word, but to have that mindfulness, I guess, because the world is changing very rapidly. And every place that we went to, we were told that the species are migrating. The weather had changed drastically in the last five years, degradation, rivers of plastic. And you're very aware of the fact that um, we are having an impact and travel has an impact as well. And that was something we wrestled with a lot because there's so much that's wonderful about travel, but over tourism is an issue and travel is a huge weight for the planet to bear. But so is under tourism because tourism is the only juggernaut that's big enough to compete with extractive practices like overfishing or mining or anything else. If we put an economic value on protecting species and places, then we have a much better chance of protecting them and securing these pockets of biodiversity. So what we tried to do is we tried to look at each chapter and look at an issue like ghost nets or shark conservation or coral reefs and talk about what's happening. Use that chapter as an example of kind of what's happening in more of a global perspective. And then also look at organizations on the ground. And that range from Dr. Sylvia Earle's Mission Blue down to a local Fijian community that noticed that they were overfishing one particular area. The fish weren't returning. And so they decided to make it off limits and now take out snorkeling tours instead to talk to people about why they chose to shut down that particular section of their reef from fishing and how they're choosing to protect it and document how it's rebounding and share it with tourists. And so, yeah, so we try to do that. And so in every chapter, we talk about how people can learn more, get involved and get more hands-on so they can have a much more enriched experience and learn 
as they're going along about what's happening in these destinations and in the wider world. I really like that in your book, you asked the question, what impact does my being here have? I think it helped to shift the perspective about traveling. There's a typical behavior for scuba diving holidays that, well, I am very guilty of that. I just contacted the dive resort, telling them that how many dives I want to do, how many days I'm going to be there, and what equipment I need up front. And I may have that one day, probably less than 24 hours where I have to be on the ground. But that normally just me sitting by the pool, reading the book and then topping up my suntan so I don't look that failed. <laughs> and so that also get me thinking what impact or legacy that you would like to create or expect to create with this book, A Diver's Guide to the World. We really want this book to get divers traveling and get travelers diving because there's absolutely nothing wrong with what you're saying. That's how we divers all want to be underwater exploring. Yeah. So we surface and then you're just counting down time until you can go back under again, basically. And then travelers don't even know what's down there. They might snorkel and see a parrotfish and maybe a little bit of coral reef that's close to shore, but otherwise they have no idea what's down there. And so there's this massive disconnect on both sides or can be. And it's not only a missed opportunity to learn, but it's also a missed opportunity to enjoy. And it does a lot of good. For example, divers venture out into the community and talk about that they're here because of the marine park and show people and the shops and other places and show some of the kids that they meet, show them pictures on their phone of an octopus or a jellyfish or shark or something that's in this marine park. If they spend money in the community and talk about how wonderful it is to come out here and go diving, what do you think the community is going to want to do? They're going to want to keep protecting that place. They're going to want to see more divers. They're going to want to make your experience as wonderful as possible. Mm. And for travelers, if you're starting to see the underwater world, then you're a lot more conscious of the fact that there's this whole different side to the planet that you're not exploring and that the whole ecosystems and lives that are taking place under the water. And Chris always likes to talk about the fact that sometimes you just want to go on a holiday. You don't want all the heavy stuff. And yeah. yeah, exactly. One of the things that we're trying to highlight as well is having a more positive message about protecting the oceans or protecting the planet in general. And the fact that we can have an impact, there are a lot of people out there doing really great work and making a massive difference just on tiny little budgets with a tiny group of people. And they're making huge inroads, even though it doesn't always seem like that. And there's a lot of doom and gloom out there. There are a hell of a lot of people around who are doing an absolutely amazing job. And we hopefully were able to highlight a few of those people in our book. But like Harry said, it's not always actually that hard to do something good. If you can go into the community and show the community that is why you came to this destination, you specifically made a beeline there because there's a good marine park and the marine life there is amazing. So take Raja Ampat, for instance, which is absolutely incredible wildlife and marine environment on your day back in port or whatever before you need to fly out if you can spend the day just wandering around there going through the shops going to a restaurant and just tell people hey yeah we came here because rajampa marine environment it's so good that's why we come here to dive then they will gain from that and then as that becomes a really good economic factor for them then yeah they're going to be willing to protect it and like carrie also said 
Sometimes it is just a, a nice holiday and all you need to do is spend a little bit of time researching where you're going and seeing what the destination is doing on its own. A good example of that one is Mizul Resort in Raja Ampat. They're pretty much doing everything as well as they possibly can. They've turned a shark feeding camp into a luxury resort. They've got some of the best diving anywhere on the planet. They use funds from hotel guests to Ooh. permanently fund an 18-person ranger patrol that patrols the marine protected area. And they have a recycling program set up, so they're doing a lot of work. And so you can go and have a dive holiday without worrying about all the other stuff because the place that you chose is doing all the right things on your behalf. And there are a few places out there that are really trying to do that around the world. That makes it easy to go and have a stress-free holiday. The thing is, really just, like you say, being a bit more mindful. It just makes mm. you make that extra effort, get to know environment and the community, whatever's going on around there. And it's educational and it also helps to raise more awareness. And I like the fact that you've highlighted balance between bringing in the tourists and having the tourists to help to raise the awareness of the local people so that they can appreciate their own environment and understand that the better beneficial options is to protect the environment. Now, lots of people have been doing that in various different places. You already mentioned a few projects that you come across there. Are there any particular one that really made the impression on you? The wonderful thing is that a lot of them made such a wonderful impression, but some of them, for example, in French Polynesia, there's a group of young people called the Coral Gardeners. And when we met them, the founder is a gentleman by the name of Tituan, who I think he had just turned 20. He grew up in the area. And when he was 16, he noticed the reef breaks were changing for him and his surfing buddies. So they started diving down and taking a look at the reef and, and they saw that the reef was quite degraded. And so they went and spoke to people to say, are we going to do something about this? And everybody basically said no. Nobody had any plans, so they said, we'll do something about it. And so they founded an organization out of his parents' basement called the Coral Gardeners. And now here it is in 2022, and they have offices and half a million Instagram followers, and they've harnessed social media, and they're growing super corals, and they have huge replanting efforts going on. They are doing amazing work. And it's just this group of local 16, 17, 18-year-olds that decided to get stuck in and do something when nobody else was doing it. And it's now spread around the world as yeah. well. They've got other chapters around the world that are doing the same model as they're doing, but in different countries. So they bring in visiting amazing. scientists. They're just doing extraordinary work. And it's so much fun to watch them like take the world by storm. And then Marine Megafauna Foundation, which is based out of Mozambique with Dr. Andrea Marshall, they're doing extraordinary work. They spent 20 years lobbying the government of Mozambique to protect manta rays and whale sharks because that's a real hot spot for megafauna. Most of the Mozambique coastline, it's a really diverse, incredible place to dive. Mm. And just in 2021, they finally got that protections through, and which is a huge achievement. And they're doing pioneering research in manta rays and they're doing a lot of local initiatives as well, such as teaching local kids to swim. Because in places like Mozambique, even though it's a strong fishing community, a lot of people are out on the water. Most of them don't know how to swim. So there's a lot of drownings. There's a lot of fear. There's a big disconnect. And so partnered with the local hotel they're teaching kids to swim and then they're teaching them about beach cleanups and about the marine life and getting them on a path to become 
either scientists or dive guides if they're interested in doing that. And the local dive shops there are helping by training up local dive guides as well. So they'll train the kids up, teach them how to, first of all, snorkel, then dive. And then if anyone really likes it, they'll keep training them up to dive masters as well. So that's a really good little community going on there, which is great. I think far more constructive and more empowering when you show them the way to make their own living is more sustainable instead mm. of just blandly writing a chat saying here you go uh, make use of this money all the lovely work that you've seen looking back what keyword that would come to your mind when you're looking at those and you want to share with people to help to raise the awareness further and say hope I was going to say inspiration. Uh, inspiration, hope. Yeah, that's, that's a good word. But I'd say hope. I think it's really important to show that there is hope and we can make a huge difference. And there, are, like I said, there are a lot of people out there making a huge difference, even on small, smaller scale. And you don't hear a lot about a lot of them because there's so much competition for information and things. And a lot of the time, News articles focus on the bad state that things are in instead of showing the hopeful and really good efforts that are being made and have made huge differences in certain areas. And just think focusing the whole conversation more on the hope and that there is actually hope and that it's not all doom and gloom and we can actually make a difference and we are already making a difference. But I don't think a lot of people get to see that, unfortunately. And Carrie, what about inspiration for you? Oh, anytime I travel and meet some of these extraordinary people who are doing amazing work, just head down, getting into it day in, day out and everything that they've learned and how curious they are and how engaged and how passionate they are. And I just come away just buzzing. I could write an entire book about each one of the groups that we met along the way. And it was really hard to edit myself down and keep it to the bare bones because we just met so many extraordinary people and they really kept us going and inspired us along the way. I know that sounds a bit cheesy, but it's actually very true. That's why we need someone like you to share that message because sometimes we forget that this is actually a very important ingredient to make life interesting and then make living meaningful. So I'm going to switch the subject slightly because both of you travel together and you're married coupled and it's a long travel and it's very intense. So I'm curious, what's this between you that assure that you both went away and came home and they're still alive and happy? But yeah, there's one key factor and that's Chris is a very patient person. <laughs> that's the only thing that kept our marriage together. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> he is, he's very patient with me. I get into tight knots when I'm writing, get anxious about all kinds of things. But yeah, he's very supportive in that sense. I think we both traveled a lot and we met each other later in life. I think he was in his mid-30s and I was nearing 40. And so we're both fairly independent people. So we do that quite well. And I think we surprised each other at how much we actually enjoyed spending time together. That was a delightful discovery. (laughs) Yeah. And for me, we had a few run-ins on the road, but we worked out that those seemed to happen at 2 a.m. in the morning at an airport when we hadn't eaten, we hadn't gotten much sleep and we would just have a bit of an argument then. And after a while, we realized, hey, we're always having these arguments at 2 a.m. in the morning when we haven't eaten and haven't slept. And so we just basically decided to ignore those arguments that we had and then never slept. <laughs> so give each other a bit of slack. It's 2 a.m. We're hungry. 
Great Grand Prix. And they were ridiculous arguments about, you take the window seat. No, I had it last time. You take the window seat. You enjoy looking out of it more. No, but you like to sleep against it. Just trying to be nice to each other and fighting about it. <laughs> yeah, it was funny. Once we got past that, then it was all it's easy. Sailing, yeah. Yeah. It, was, it was a shared stress of everything and having to be somewhere and just trying not to internalize when someone's a bit snappy just because of stress and lack of sleep and all of that kind of thing. And yeah, it ended up not actually being that hard as far as that the interpersonal thing was actually very easy, which was good. Very inspiring that I'm going to take note for it. But I'm still curious, you must have discovered something new in the making of this book. So what have you discovered about the others? Probably, let's put it this way, the thing that I'm probably most proud of with Carrie is the way she took to diving. Her diving was absolutely brilliant on the whole trip. She did really well. She pushed her boundaries quite a lot in a lot of circumstances, Komodo, for instance, or Aliwal Troll in South Africa, which is a really tough dive. And she was a real trooper and went through and was rewarded with some really incredible dives, luckily. But that's particularly important because she needed to get past some really strong PTSD because of a really bad experience on her first dive course and her very first open water dive, which... Yeah, definitely one of the worst open water course dives I've ever heard about. I just think it was incredibly good of her to get through that. So I'm incredibly proud of her with that. And she's actually a really good and competent diver. She's a bit nervous, but that means she's switched on and she's alert about everything, which is the main thing. Yeah, she's a really good diver, which is good. Yeah, see, now my question, I don't know, how do you, how do you even respond to that? I mean, how do you that? I know Chris is a very caring person he likes to put on a tough front and joke about being grouchy and a grumpy old man quite young but he's not he cares very deeply about the environment he cares very deeply about people he loves talking to people about sharks which is his favorite animal so he can talk to local kids about sharks or talk to somebody on the boat or answer questions if they're nervous about diving with sharks and before i started diving when chris would be diving and then off i'd be off during the day I could tell the minute he walked through the door, the minute I saw him, if he'd seen a shark on a dive, because he has what I call the shark face. He had a certain expression that he wore if he saw a shark on a dive, and he still has shark face. But it was just amazing to see him. He cares about doing a good job. He really cares about trying to motivate people to not give up hope and to go out there and explore and give diving a try. And it's just wonderful to see him in his element. He just thrived. Oh, and it's so beautiful. I think that pretty much every diver's and aspiration wanting to convert all the non-divers <laughs> to be yeah. divers. But also, also be encouraging to people who don't take to diving immediately. I think, unfortunately, in a lot of the dive community, there's this perception that if someone doesn't take to diving immediately, then it's not for them. And I have noticed a lot of divers discouraging people who don't take to it immediately, but yeah, I disagree with that. I've taken a lot of nervous people diving, especially people diving who were nervous about sharks and absolutely 180 degree turn afterwards. And they're not nervous about sharks anymore. And they're completely converted. I think it's natural to be nervous about things, especially breathing underwater. We're not meant to be breathing underwater. I think for some people, it takes longer to take to it. And for other people, it comes absolutely naturally. But I think the people for whom it comes naturally, they need to remember that it doesn't for everybody else. And some people just need more time and to take it a bit slower. And if that means doing an extra few dives on your dive course and spending a little bit more money, yes, that might be needed. 
but the rewards that you can get, if you can get past that, and if you can actually come to a place where you become a confident diver are just so incredibly good. So what brings you the greatest joy when you're on the water? Sharks. Look, if I'd have had my way with the choice of destinations for the book, it would have been 50 good places to dive with sharks. But I am aware that other people do like other things like wreck diving and cave diving and other things. So I'm aware of that. And nudie ranks and things like that. They're possibly not my favorite. And I do love doing all of those things as well. Like diving in Mexico in the cenotes was an amazing experience. I enjoyed it and I enjoy a good wreck every now and then. But yeah, realistically, if I have the choice of two dives, one's a wreck dive and one's a shark dive, I'm going to choose the shark dive every time. And for me, because it was all new and pretty much every week I was diving a new place. That was my diving indoctrination. I was incredibly lucky, but it was also incredibly challenging in its own way because every week we were someplace new and I was diving into a new experience, but my world just kept getting bigger and bigger. And I just had no idea all this time, everything that I was missing out on. I had no idea. I'm an ocean lover. I'm always the first one in and the last one out when we go on snorkeling trips when I was growing up. And so, yeah, to me, every time it was like mind blown <laughs> underwater every <laughs> single time. So I hope that's what diving is like forever. I like that. So what next for you? Another 50 places? Oh, collapse, first of all. Oh. No, seriously, we've been working on this for so long because the book got delayed a few times because of COVID, obviously, like everybody and everything. And so we can't believe that it's finally out, that A Diver's Guide to the World is finally here and we get to share it with the world. And then that is terrifying and exciting. And so we'll hold our breath for a little while and see how that goes. And then it'll be summer here in Australia, hopefully soon. And that means more diving where we are. And then I think in early 2023, we'll start to, we've got lots of plans bubbling along. And so hopefully some of those will start to take shape. We need to find Sylvia and get her to green light a few more things for us. <laughs> Give Sylvia a call and say, can you get on the phone? <laughs> Now you got your green pass. All the best. I want to ask you a question that I always ask about my guests. Well, the first one, I usually ask them, what are the top three items that you will always pack for a diving trip in your dry bags? And I'm going to spin that by asking you, what were your must-have personal comfort items that you took with you on your 14-month-long travel? <laughs> personal comfort items. A scarf for me. For sure. I always travel with multiple scarves. First of all, they're very useful souvenirs. They are good sun protection. They keep you warm. They act as pillows. You need to wear them sometimes in certain cultural situations. They hide travel stains really well on t-shirts. <laughs> so you don't have to do laundry <laughs> as often. I always take a notebook. I have a favorite moleskin hardback notebook and I write everything down. That's how I make sense of the world. And then a book and Lots of books, but hardcover books. If I'm reading something electronically, it's work for me. That may go into editor or writing mode. So I need like the hard copy book that you can put your plane ticket in that has grains of sand in it that the pages start falling out. I and love that, those. That was hard for you this time. You won't, at least you won't give up a book. No. So she'll get a book and then take it home and then keep it. But on the road, she obviously couldn't do that because she was reading multiple books. So once we finished a book, she had to swap it out for another one. And so that was very hard for her. It was fun to watch. A learning experience. So for me, I'm half English, half German. And 
probably more German than I am English, even though I don't sound it. So I'm very practical with things. I don't think I took anything with me that was a pure comfort item. One thing that is loosely possibly a comfort item because it's so practical and helpful is I always take a power board with me. So like a power strip with lots of plugs, and then I can plug it into a wall because hotels usually only have one plug somewhere. And if you need to plug in cameras and all sorts of different things all in one go, and then you can't. So I always have that and an extension cord because the plugs are always in horrible places as well. So that's loosely a comfort item for me because otherwise it just annoys me and being so practical. You need to have your battery charged for the next dive, basically. I know, battery charged for the next oh, dive, laptops, all of that kind of stuff that needs to be plugged in. It's just Otherwise, it's a nightmare and stresses you out. So that's loosely comfort. Then I'd say noise cancelling headphones. That's a comfort item, but it is so good. You pop them on and can't hear a thing and it's perfect. It's like you can sleep on planes and things. So maybe, they're really handy. Maybe that's what kept us together all this time. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Chatter along. I've got a noise <laughs> Yeah. I, otherwise, I don't really know as a comfort item. Although I do burn actually quite easily. I get a lot of sunburn very easily. So I'm reasonably light skin. So I go pink quite quickly. So some good sunscreen, some reef safe sunscreen is probably a comfort item because it's very uncomfortable getting sunburned. I can relate to that. Last week while I was in Sydney, I don't even know how to describe sun. It really is yeah. hot. Australia yeah. and New Zealand are really bad with, yeah, with sunburn. Did you get a little bit crisp? Yeah, I get burned. Even on the all the cars, they uh, did a coastal walk around. Bronte Beach to die and then back. And I went home and looked in the mirror. Oh my God, I got burnt on the <laughs> overcrush day. Anyway, next question. What are your top three top tips on safe diving practice? You I'll go first. For me, it's, okay. and this is a pet peeve of mine ever since I was working in diving as a dive master, it's the basics. It's something that especially experienced divers tend to neglect. It's things like doing a buddy check a proper buddy check, which a lot of experienced divers are like, oh, I'll be fine. I do this all the time. Don't do a buddy check. And then something fails on their gear. Another big one, really important. Listen to the dive brief so you know what's going on on the dive and where you're meant to be, where you're going, whether the boat's going to pick you up at a different spot. All of the essential things, really important. A lot of people tend to neglect that when they get more experience, they're chattering along while the dive brief is happening. And then the third one, and this is my absolute pet peeve because I've had so many things go wrong about it, is leave your fins, your mask and your regulator in place until you're hanging onto the boat, until you need to take them off. So if you need to take your fins off in the water, take your fins off first, hang them up to the boat and then climb up and then get rid of your mask and your regulator. Because I've seen so many people struggle taking their mask off first, then not being able to get their fins off, getting one fin off, then drifting away from the boat, not being able to see the other one, not being able to swim back because they've only got one fin on. All of those kinds of things, I've seen it a hundred times. And so for me, the bait's <laughs> Learn it in open water, and there's a reason why it's so important. So mine are probably a little bit more personal because I don't quite have the experience that Chris does, but dive within your limits. Mm. So don't let anybody pressure you. You know yourself, you know how you're feeling, you know what your body's. Dive within your limits and trust that you'll know when it's time to extend your skill set a little bit. You'll feel comfortable and ready to start 
extending your limits. Now that applies to anybody. It doesn't matter how experienced you are, but I think dive within your limits is a good one. As Chris mentioned, like I do have some anxiety when I dive and I hear a lot of talk about, oh, if you're anxious, you shouldn't dive. And that's to me is nonsense, but how you manage your anxiety. I think to some degree, sometimes being conscious of your own inexperience is actually a better safeguard than being too cocky. So for me, it's all about managing that. For example, Chris and I have a dive sign between the two of us where if I'm feeling like I just need a minute, usually it's just when we descend and I just need a minute to get my bearings and get myself together and feel comfortable breathing and look around. And then I'm ready to go off and have a great adventure. And so we have a sign between the two of us when nothing's wrong, but I just want to stop for a minute and take a pause. And so I think that if you're a new diver or an out-of-practice diver or a diver in a new situation, if you're feeling a little bit anxious, just know how to manage it. And going through your routines helps, making sure you're ticked off your buddy list, make, or your buddy checks, make sure that you've asked any questions before you get in the water. If you have any questions following the dive brief, just don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to speak up and manage. And then I think having a good dive buddy is really important. Chris never pushed me. He was always very clear on... I'm responsible for my own dive. If I want to pull the plug, I pull the plug. If I don't want to go, I don't go. It's my job to set up my gear. So he was on me about best practice. And so if you're traveling and you're a solo traveler or you are at different levels of diving and you want to do a different kind of dive, then pay extra for a dive guide. Have a dive guide come along with you one-on-one -on -one for the first dive or two in a new destination while you get your bearings. Just organize it in advance. Most dive shops are just fine with that as long as you plan in advance. And then you get to relax and enjoy yourself, get your bearings, and your dives will be that much more enjoyable. That's very helpful, actually. And I think it's definitely keeping your regulator, your mouth, the muscle as you climb up the ladder. Yeah. Especially if you are in the open water and the choppy scenario, it's okay to go into the water and you still got the regulator and you can breathe. Exactly. It's so hard though, when you come up for a really good dive to take the urge to not take your regulator, spit your regulator and go, oh my God, did you see all of them? <laughs> yeah, that's hard. I've had so many issues with that in the past that it's just ingrained in me that the basics are the basics for a reason. Yeah. Thanks for that. Okay. The next question, what is your greatest fear? You get to go first. Well, I get to go first. Yeah. I'd say losing carry actually. Oh, it's <laughs> Now you're going to make my kids. <laughs> 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 they don't scare me. Oh, look, not much scares me. Anything that's out of my control is not really much point in getting worried about, really. And obviously, I try not to put myself in a situation that's going to be extremely dangerous for no reason, because for me, there's no dive worth risking my life for. So if I'm not comfortable with it, I'm not going to do it. But I wouldn't say that's my greatest fear. It's just, for me, it, it makes sense not to risk that. Yeah, realistically, the only real thing that scares me is, yeah, losing carry and then be alive. Now I can't answer the question. <laughs> Any answer I come up with is going to look very self-centered. That's very sweet, honey. Thank you. Look, my fear has always been like not making the most of the time that we've got on this planet. It's always been that way since I was a little kid. I felt this like clock ticking about I've got to get going. I've got things to see. I've got things to do. I've got people to meet. I don't want to miss a moment of it. And we don't know how long we're gifted with. And yeah, so I'm just throwing myself out there as, as hard as I can, basically. I really like both of your answers. Basically, the cheesy one, that's it. I'll give you an extra <laughs> <quick>. <laughs> 
I, I, I like the fact that you really take life on as a tips and then live in the present moment and knowing what is in your control and with deal with it. And it's not that you have no fear. It's just you're not letting this fear paralyze you mm. and stop you. And in yeah. fact, you do the opposite. You actually make sure you, you take control of your fear and then you make the most out of the time that you have. People don't realize it, but failure actually takes practice. <laughs> you need, it, does, it does. You need to practice. To, you need to fail and fail again and keep getting up and keep trying and keep, if you fail and you give up, you don't learn anything from it. And so I, I again, from a very early age, I would try something and fail epically. I'm just miserable attempt. And I just pick up, dust up, embarrass myself and try again. And pretty soon I became immune to that and learned that it's not going to kill me. And so I have a very tenacious personality. <laughs> That's so bad. There's a little bit of irony in this story though as well. When I was a little child, I was supposed to learn to snorkel in Greece. And I was extremely paranoid about sharks. And I was incredibly afraid of sharks as a little kid. Because when I was tiny, I saw Jaws way too young. So I would have been five or six when I saw Jaws. And yeah, I was completely panicking about sharks and being attacked by sharks. Went so far that I couldn't really go swimming because I was so worried about it. And uh, my mother gave me books about sharks to learn a little bit more about the reality of sharks. And over time, I became fascinated with it and it became the main reason that I wanted to learn to dive. When I went into the dive spot, they asked, well, why do you want to learn to dive? And I said, I want to see sharks. <laughs> and yeah, and for me now, any dives that I see a shark is yeah, the best kind of dive. So you can overcome the fear and move on and can become something, yeah, that you absolutely love. One of my so, favorite memories of Chris entirely, but also of our trip is when we were in Aliwal Shoal and we were diving with gray nurse sharks or ragged tooth sharks. And there is this kind of half crescent canyon that they like to hide in because it helped give them a little bit of protection. And in the middle of the canyon was this kind of sandy patch. We we stumbled across when we were diving that site. It was what our guide called a raggy parking lot. There was about 20 sharks just hanging out in the surge. And there was a lot of other activity going on. So I was turning this way and that, and I was watching Trevally cut through a bait ball. And there's all kinds of activity happening. So I turn around and I'm missing my dive buddy. And I look for Chris and I see him he always has yellow and black fins and I see the tips of his yellow and black fins and they're crossed at the ankles and he's lying on his back in the sand and he has about 18 of those sharks right on top of him, just hovering over top of them because he was, they're quite still breathing and the sharks couldn't get enough of him. But who is this and what is he doing now? So they were just all on top of him and I could barely see him because of this cloud of sharks. And meanwhile, all these other divers are trying to get photographs of these sharks and they're chasing after them with cameras and the sharks would give them that peculiar side eye that ragged tooth sharks have and then scoot away from them. And Chris is just lying on his back, this big sharp magnet in the middle of the ocean. It's fantastic. <laughs> oh, wow. I'm listening to this with envy. I wish I was the person I there. When everyone asked me how to get close to the sharks after that, I had to teach how to get close to ragged tooth because my first open water dive was in Byron Bay in Australia. So it's where I learned to dive. And my very first dive, I dropped down the line and 
basically right on top of a gray nurse or ragged tooth or sand tiger sharks, same species. So yeah, dropped straight down on top of it basically. And it was right there underneath me. So the first animal that I can remember seeing on my very first dive was a ragged tooth shark. So I just love her as well. I've got a massive soft spot for them and they're a really nice shark to dive with. So. What's your greatest extravagance? Books and travel. Books and travel. I've got travel as well on mine. Definitely travel. Travel and dive gear probably, but I don't really consider dive gear an extravagance, especially quality dive gear. So I don't mind spending more money on dive gear because I don't think spending a lot of money on dive gear is an extravagance when you're talking about life support systems. But yeah, travel, I would say, is a bit of an extravagance. Other than that, not really. I'm not an extravagant spender otherwise. What are the the things that you most look forward to whenever you go traveling? Seeing somewhere new, experiencing somewhere new, experiencing new cultures, and yeah, just seeing something different that I haven't seen yet. And it doesn't matter if that's in the home country, like even traveling somewhere in Australia, going to a new place in Australia and just seeing what it's like somewhere else or going somewhere much further afield like Africa on this trip was my first time in Africa and absolutely loved it. It was amazing, completely different kind of culture to what I'm used to. Absolutely loved going and seeing new things and experiencing new cultures and people. I love the stimulation of travel, Mm. like Chris was saying, but I also find the community side of things, it balances me. I can get really caught up in news cycles and there's a lot that's on our minds right now. There's war and political instability and climate change and economic instability. And everywhere you turn, there's a lot of news and people to vilify and you travel and everybody loves their kids and wants some place to sleep at night and wants to earn a little bit more money than they spend. And we laugh over, we enjoy a good meal and love music. And there's so much more that just binds everybody together. And then it just reassures me that Mm-hmm. overwhelming majority of people out there, good people. And I love getting to know, meeting people and getting to know a little bit about their lives. And yeah, it just makes me feel like I'm part of something. So I really enjoy that. But yeah, probably the, another way I'm seeing it is that you're versatile. Both of you, you're adaptable and open-minded. But I think you also enjoy very creative space that's colliding between the two conflicting environments or culture. And because that little gap or the space is the most exciting part where the creativity comes out. It's a big part of it. It definitely sparks a lot of creativity. It always has done. What about you? What do you find? What is it about travel that keeps you coming back to different places and different things like why do you get on the road because you're quite a traveler yourself new experiences very similar to new like meeting new people collecting different stories and very similar to what i'm doing with this podcast where hearing your story and sometimes something i can resonate to at personal level value level and even i like philosophy and get inspired now I learned from um, Chris that if you plan your travel around the world in one direction, you can deal with jet lag. But lots of small <laughs> steps, <laughs> lots of small steps. Okay, the next question, what do you most value in your friends? Kindness and a wicked sense of humor. <laughs> Two things. I'd say honesty. Honesty is probably the most important thing. You can have a difference of opinion as long as both sides are coming from an honest place. Yeah, as soon as one side's being in any kind of way deceitful, there's no real basis for friendship anymore. 
So yeah, I think honesty is the base foundation. And then obviously, yeah, other things, there are other things like good sense of humor and stuff to make it gel and things like that. I've definitely got some reasonably good friends I disagree with on a lot of things. But like I said, because everyone's approaching it from an honest position and willing to listen to the other person's side, yeah, then I think that works nicely. But yeah, it's, I think it's very important to be able to agree to disagree. So you like you the Komodo chapter? I do. And I'm glad you sent that chapter to me because uh, it just happened to be a creature where I actually do admire that with fear and love at the same time really triggers my imagination. So this is what it's going to look like. So you've got your dragon. Wow. And then... Yeah, did you take those photos, Chris? No. And then you've got your manta, but look at what Komodo looks like. I don't know if you can see. Isn't it just beautiful? That's amazing. It's just stunning. And then one thing that we love... It's very worthwhile going. And then we love that they put like the need to know section on a background. So all the information and then you have your make a difference box down here. And that's what every chapter is. Oh, it's very nicely organized. It's beautiful. They did a wonderful job with it, with the layout. We just think it's, yeah, it's beautiful. We didn't take the pictures, but we gave them a very detailed list of this is what you need to have in each place. And we also gave them a list of local photographers who are really good, who have mm -hmm. shot the area forever, who never get the opportunity to be like in a National Geographic book. You have been listening to Surface Time Confessions of a Diving Junkie. My guests today were Carrie Miller and Chris Taylor, who have written A Diver's Guide to the World. 14 months of traveling, 35 countries, 50 places. What an epic journey that they have made in the making of this book. If they had their way, it might have been a book per place. I really like the fact that instead of plastering with labels like ecotourism and green travels, they have simply illustrated the true essence of mindfulness through their stories, connecting readers with those people and places as if we were there in person. In turns, it has shifted our perspective about traveling. In planning the next travel, we're now invited to think about what impacts does my being here have? And what benefits can we bring to the community directly or indirectly while we visit the place? Their authenticity has made me feel inspired and hopeful about the future of our blue planet. And by the way, what are you waiting for? Go online to amazon.com and order a copy or two today. Surface Time is executively produced by Noetic Production and music by Dress Studio.